Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. If you want to check out our ministry, please go to lifeovercoffee.com. We have thousands upon thousands of free resources that you are welcome to enjoy, benefit from freely, and of course, always share with your friends. Please share our resources with others. I'm going to call this Big Whopper Question Day, and I have a huge question that I want to ask you. Here it is. What would you rather have if you had only one choice? All right, you're looking at two things, but you can only choose one of these things. Here you go. A change of circumstances, or option number two, a change of mind about your circumstances. Now, you can only pick one of those. Which one would you pick? Now, this question that I'm asking you is critical, and it ties directly to the quality of life that you're going to experience with God and with other people, especially when things go badly for you, especially when your situation is unchangeable. And so there you are, you're sitting in an unchangeable situation, whatever that may be. The question is pertinent. And it will affect how you think about God, how you respond to what's happening to you, and how you respond to others. Which would you rather have? A change in the unchangeable circumstance or a change of mind about your circumstance? Now, I suspect that most of us would prefer a change of circumstances over a change of mind about our circumstances. Or let me speak for myself. I know that I would. I have been there and done that. I have the t-shirt and I have been in unchangeable situations in my life. And when those times came, I wanted out of the circumstances. I wasn't interested in what God may have in mind, what he might can do in me, through me, for me. No, I just want it out of my trouble. When disappointment comes, I typically, I mean, my default is to look for the exits and to go into flight mode. I mean, how fast can I get to higher ground? Our self-preservation instincts are normal. And so if you're looking for the exit, I don't want you to think that you're like an abnormal human being because you're not. But even though they are natural to us to run to the exits, it's not always wise when there is a higher aim in operation here, when there is a divine orchestrator, when there is an author writing another story, he may be working a superior plan. And so what I want you to think about over the next few minutes is the unparalleled benefit of living in an unchangeable situation. This is a big deal. This is something that applies to every single one of us. You see, the unintended consequences of the quick exit mentality is perpetual vulnerability to our circumstances. I mean, we'll always be vulnerable to what is going on around us if the only option on the table is that when it happens, I get to get out of it because I am afraid and we never overcome our fears. It, it keeps us in a state of vulnerability it will actually tempt us to want to control our world so that we're not like a puppet on a string. Where bad days keep us vulnerable, especially when we can't get out of the situation. It is a strategy for being controlled by what's happening outside of us than what is going on inside of us. I mean, the operations of the Holy Spirit working in us gives us a greater strength 
It is a higher power operating in us that makes us victors. It gives us a victory mindset that lifts us above the fray even while in the mess. And it helps us not to have a victim mindset that keeps us nervous about the next shoe that most assuredly will drop. We live in a fallen world, so it's not even rational or logical to think that we can get through uh, this world without difficulties. And so we don't want to live in a vulnerable state, motivated by fear, always trying to control our circumstances, never live in a victorious Christian life. Think about the last negative thing that happened to you. How did you respond? Now, my goal here is not to guilt trip you or to pummel you in any way. I just want you to think about how you respond. I've, I've gone through this exercise, and as I said earlier, my, my response is typically looking for the exit signs. And so your response to the last disappointment or difficulty in your life, whether it was right or wrong, is vital because it reveals to you what you cherish most, learning trusting, learning from the author of our story and trusting the author of our story, or just blowing through those barriers and trying to find the exit. It's one or two masters that we're going to serve. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, 21, our hearts and our treasures, how we will serve one or the other. For example, a wrong response is when we try to manage our circumstances or manipulate things or manipulate people. So they change according to our preferences, and then we have a preferred life. We want a life according to our preferences, and so in order to get that, we have to manipulate. Uh, we have to manage people, bend them, move them, so that we can have everything the way that we desire. That is a difficult way to live. It will, it will not only amp up internal soul noise, but ultimately, it will fracture relationships because you can't bend other people to cooperate with whatever it is that you want them to do. But then there is a grace-empowered response. This is the other master, and this is God as our master. You can only serve one or two masters. A grace-empowered response is it's an acknowledgment that the sovereign Lord is in control. And though people or events might not change, they may not cooperate with our wishes, there is persevering grace to help us during the crisis. And so I'll go back to my questions. You can only choose one. Which would you prefer? Always having a change of circumstances or a change of mind about how you think about process and persevere in the circumstances. Because the truth is, there are some situations that are absolutely unchangeable. And so really, we have to get on with the second option. We have to have a change of mind because some things are just not going to change. Let me illustrate these tensions with my friends, uh, Biff and Mabel. Mabel wants Biff to change. Now, she's right. Absolutely right. Biff should change. Sin has captured him, and for many reasons, he's just not been able to extricate himself from his caughtness. Now, she has become frustrated and impatient with him. She's trying to change the circumstances through force. And rather than helping Biff, you remember what Paul said in Galatians 6, 1, if anyone is caught, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Well, she's not helping Biff through his sin patterns that way. She actually complicates the problem by being demanding, controlling, and critical. 
That's like jumping on a man who is already in a bear trap. I'm not making excuses for Biff, but I am saying that as as restorers of caught people, we can't just jump on top of them by being demanding, controlling, and critical. That is not the way to help a person walk down paths of righteousness. Now, added to these problems, they have a wayward child, Biffy. And Biff has yet to connect his issues with his son's. And like Mabel, Biff is sincere in wanting their son to change, but Biffy's rebellion has tempted Biff to sin, to do what Mabel is doing to him. The Lord is too slow for Biff, so he resorts to sinful manipulations to reel Biffy back into the fold. Biff and Mabel's response to their circumstances, well, they are they're similar, the way Mabel's responding to Biff and Biff responding to Biffy, but that is a far cry from the worshipful response of Job. And so we have Biff and, Mif, Biff and Mabel wanting to change their circumstances, and then we have Job. When he came to the end of his chapter, number one, he said, "'This naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return.'" The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a man sitting in unchangeable circumstances. We're looking in the rearview mirror and we know that his circumstances will never change. They can't change because there's death all around him. But that was his response. Knowing that he could not change his circumstances, he had the right mindset about his circumstances. Mabel and Biff do not realize that God is more interested in helping them change their minds about their circumstances than changing their circumstances. They only see what's happening as unchangeable, and both of them are angry for different reasons, but both of them are angry. When Job reflected upon his seemingly unchangeable circumstances, he fell to the ground and offered a worship-filled response to his Lord. His mindset was more on the Lord of his situation than the situation itself. If our goal is for our situation to change, which is not necessarily a wrong goal, and I don't want you to hear me say that it it is, it can't be a controlling goal. Oh, sure, you should look for the exits if that is what is available to you and is the right answer. But if that is the only thing that is acceptable to us, then the first step is to recalibrate and focus more on how we think about what is happening to us. We can miss this truth so quickly when staring trouble in the face. Our friend Job persevered. His gains and losses, what the Lord gave, what the Lord took away, his gains, his losses were not as significant as the God who was in the gains and the losses. The New Testament equivalent to this kind of God-centered thinking was Paul. He said it this way, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul learned to live counter to his troubled world. He was not impressed with the things his culture offered. For him, it was reputation, image, position, power, materialism, affluence, relevance, and style. Those things would give him bragging rights, but they were comparable to manure in Paul's mind. He took all the good outcomes, all the wonderful things that he had, 
and the things that he possessed, and he threw them in the garbage heap because he found something surpassing those human-made aspirations. He moved his exemplary accomplishments from the profit column to the lost column, which left nothing in his profit column but Christ. Paul would rather have Jesus than anything this world had to offer. And his, his worldview was not over-spiritualized Christians speak. No, his practical theology was consistent with his view about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. If you put Paul's perspective in a formula, it would say something like this, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, and Jesus plus nothing equals sanctification. Authentic Christianity is relinquishing our desires from ruling our hearts for the opportunity to gain Christ alone. You are most potent when the surpassing worth of knowing Christ causes all other loves in your life to fade into the background. You should not attempt to add Jesus to the plus column of your life in addition to everything else that you want. Biff to repent, Biffy to repent, or whatever that thing or things are that you want. No, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. To have Jesus plus other things will always leave you vulnerable to those other things, tempting you to micromanage your vulnerable life to maintain a level of certainty that calms your fears. Talking about Biff and Mabel again. This self-reliant collection and maintenance of dreams. It'll create unnecessary competition in your heart. You'll be serving two masters, as Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. You will forever live in tension until Christ rules supreme in your heart plus nothing else. Jesus knew this temptation was a problem with some of his followers. He was the latest fad, a misguided perspective for Jesus to be the latest fad. And so it motivated him to adjust their perspectives on what it meant to be a follower. And so he said this in Luke 14. This is pretty strong. Now great crowns accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. You know, maybe we should put this in our Evangelism 101 methodology and teach it in our Evangelism 101 class because what happens, Jesus can become a fad. He can become the crush to get us out of our unchangeable situation. As the plane is going down, dear Jesus, would you help me? But we're only using him to acquire something. That's not what Paul was saying. That's not what Job was saying in chapter 1. It's Jesus plus nothing. Whether the plane goes down or not, if the Lord gives or takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And though Paul was a great man who accomplished many things in his pre-regenerative life that surpassed nearly everyone else in his day, he was willing to let go of all those things because he found something superior. To be willing to let go of everything you value for the sake of Christ is the ultimate victory and your most significant challenge.
which is why many people chose not to follow Jesus any longer. Many of them went away sad, like the rich young ruler, for example. He had many possessions. He wanted Jesus plus. Are you willing to count everything in life as a minus for the sake of gaining and knowing Christ? Paul's life presents a mirror for us to examine ourselves to see if we will follow him as Paul followed Christ. Will we adopt his worldview as our own? After Paul's conversion, he changed his mind about how he fit into God's world. He began to see how the things he cherished could be overvalued, even to the point of controlling him. He learned that only one thing needed to reign supreme in his heart. This lesson is one of the hardest things anyone will ever learn. It, well, at least it is for me. I'm not quite yet there yet. As the saying is, as the bumper sticker says, he's still working on me. Now, please understand, I'm not asking you to walk away from anything. I'm not asking you to walk away from all the things that you possess. My appeal here is not a call for self-flagellation. It's not a vow to poverty so that you can prove that Christ is most important. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm asking if you would be okay if Christ were all you had. If your world falls apart as Job's did, and all the advantages you once had are no longer yours, do you think you can get to the place where knowing Christ is enough? Now, I know that is a theoretical question, and we, we will only know the true answer to the question, should these things happen? I know when they happened to me when I lost my wife and my children, lost our property, lost my job, lost virtually everything that I had or everything that I had I could put in, in my automobile, uh, I did not respond this way. It took me years to get to the point to be comfortable, to learning the value of nothingness. Now, God is not calling us to punish ourselves through ascetic practices. He is not a mean parent who wants to harm us by taking things away from us. Some people live with this view, always thinking the other shoe will fall because God does not want to bless them. That's faulty thinking. It's foolish thinking, actually. The Father gave His Son to die on a cross for Christians. If someone gave up his child so that we could live, I think it would be safe to say that we are loved and he would not withhold any good thing from us. Imagine if you were dying in the hospital and someone gave their life so you could live. Do you think they love you? Do you think they want to harm you then or in the future? His desire is not to withhold or to keep us from success but to release us from the captivation and domination that this life can have over our thinking, over our lives. Even if those things that control us are our closest relationships. When your closest relationships like Biff and Mabel are not doing what you want them to do, how much control does it have over you? He knows the only way to be strong is by being willing to suffer the loss of all things while standing in the confidence of Christ's faithfulness on our behalf. We are not strong because we can control our lives or our relationships or our circumstances. Our strength is proportional to the degree to which we rest in Christ's ability to work in and through us. Paul knew this. And when he looked at his foundation, he realized he had built it with wood, hay, and straw. 
of his personal accomplishments. His rank, his pedigree, standing, his influence became rubbish in his mind because he knew those things were manufactured and maintained by his personal power to persevere. His strengths were unguarded weaknesses that convinced him that he could do all things through himself who strengthened him. Paul decided to chuck anything that made him weak, which was everything the world called strong. He made the great exchange. I will replace all my worth with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. He learned the secret of life. When I am weak, then I am strong, which brings you to the penetrative question, where are you vulnerable? Where are you weak? He let those things go, knowing there was something better found in Christ. You are only as strong as your vulnerabilities. You're only as strong as your weakest link. When Job thought about these things, he said it this way. This is in Job 3. He says, For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job found himself, after that wonderful doxological praise to God in chapter 1, as he continued to work through his struggle, he found his weak link. And the thing that he had feared did come upon him, the thing that he tried to control through ascetic practices and offerings. What is the one thing you pray God won't take from you? Now be careful here. God is not that mean parent who wants to watch you suffer. No, God wants to bless you. The biggest blessing he could ever give you is to be free from being controlled by the things in this life. If you are governed by what you are afraid of losing, you need God's intervening power because you're not free at all. You must be okay with losing all things. And I put okay in in quotation marks because there is a caveat there. You must be okay with losing all things while obtaining Christ as your most valued treasure. Perhaps you could start by mentally letting those things go. I know this is theoretical, hypothetical, but if you still have these things and God's not changing or taking these things away, then it's just a mental experiment at this point. It is a thought experiment, a thought exercise. And so perhaps you could start by mentally letting those things go so they no longer dominate you. Perhaps going back to your salvation experience might help with this, with this thought experiment. What I mean is, do you remember renouncing the world for the greater riches found in Christ when He saved you? I do. Nothing else really mattered. I just wanted to be a Christian. Well, perhaps you're at that spot again where you need to consider forsaking the, the world for the greater riches found in Christ. You did it at your salvation. Now it's time to do it again during your sanctification. Moses was in a similar spot, though he had more to lose than most of us. When the Hebrew writer thought about the life of Moses at this particular juncture, he said it this way in Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, isn't that profound? Do you yearn for what Moses and Paul and Job had? If so, I want you to proceed by reflecting on these steps, three steps to freedom 
that will help you to practicalize the gospel in your life. Here are three simple, well, not simple. Here are three steps to freedom. I want to walk through these. Step number one. The first step to freedom is to realize the nature of the call of God on your life. The Lord is systematically, incrementally putting you to death. That is the call on our life. As we walk with Him, He is systematically, incrementally putting us to death. We are on a slow death walk with Jesus. The more you resist death, the more difficult. I'm talking about spiritual death here. I'm talking about the, the, the death for the things of this world is what I'm saying. And the more you resist this kind of death, the more difficult you will make your life and your relationships. Though Jesus talked a lot about cross-carrying, many Christians do not make this connection to their lives. And you see it when the disappointments mount. Dying to ourselves is not a one-time event but a repeated action all of our lives. We repent at salvation, and we are always repenting, always reforming, always changing. Therefore, we must have a worldview about dying to ourselves. Just as much as we need to learn how to practice it, our worldview must prepare us to step into the practical reality of this perspective when things do not turn out as we had hoped. Perhaps spending time reflecting on the seriousness of the call of Christ on our lives to die to ourselves would be time well spent. So step number one is reflectively recognizing and working through this call on our lives. Step number two is accessing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, identifying with Him the things that mean most to us, which is Christ. We want to identify, and we want to assess that, and we want to strive in all the right ways for Christ alone. These are the things that control us. Think about your fears or your anger. This is part of what you have to assess because our fears and our anger keep us from accessing Christ. Fear and anger are the two most common things because fear and anger will actually reveal what is precious to us. Fear and anger are typical responses from the person losing something that they don't want to lose. They are either afraid or they, or they are angry. And so what is it that you are afraid of losing? You must name it and claim it. You have to own what manages you, what controls your thought life, your mind. You want to renew your mind, pleading with God to release you from the control of those things you fear losing. You will never change if you're unwilling to step away from what competes for your heart's treasures. Perhaps a few diagnostic questions will help you think through the controlling influences in your life. Let me ask you just a few questions here. What situation in your life tempts you to anger? You see, most anger is a manipulative tactic of an insecure person who fears losing something that is vital to them. Their fear tempts them to anger, to corral and contain what they think they will lose. They're afraid of losing it, so they get angry to control it or manipulate it to get it back. What situation in your life tempts you to anger? Number two, what situation in your life tempts you to fear, leading to controlling anger? 
Do you, see, do you see how fear and anger work in tandem? What is it that you get angry about that will reveal what controls you? What is it that you are afraid of losing? Again, anger and fear will be excellent diagnostic questions for you. Number three, what person in your life are you trying to control? Many parents succumb to this temptation. This is what Biff was doing earlier, you remember. Spouses do the same thing. That's what Mabel was doing to Biff. She was trying to control him. And again, her desire was right, but her methodology was sinful. We want the ones that we love to behave a certain way. And we don't let it go, even attempting to control them. Uh, question number four, what situation are you trying to bend to conform to what you want? You want to devote adequate time to thinking about the people you love and the situations that you want to change. And so number one, we have to recognize the call to die, the call that is on all of our lives. Then number two, we need to understand those things that are competing with this resistance to die and gaining Christ. I used anger and fear as two diagnostic questions. Step number three, the, th the third step is to confess these things to God and perhaps a trusted friend. Paul admitted that he enjoyed what he had and what he was. There was a long time in his life when he was not going to let go of those things, like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, who loved his gold ring. What Paul possessed was precious to him. Uh, precious to him. Those things affected his thinking to the point of ruling his heart. Part of Paul's process of being released from this bondage was to let others know what those things were and how they dominated his thought life. He made a public confession, which you can read in Philippians 3, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. One of the most freeing things you can do is to articulate to someone. I mean, repent to God and articulate to someone else what has gripped you. Let others in on your fears. I'm not suggesting that you post your fears on social media. But one close, competent friend who loves you is a treasure that you want to invite on this journey with you. How do you respond when you look out over the landscape of your life and see people or situations that are not meeting your expectations? Can you let it go? Or do you try to control, either motivated by fear or motivated by anger, or that tandem as fear and anger work in cahoots with one another? If your habitual reactions are sinful, then you have not found the surpassing worth in Christ. You're not free. And you'll never be free until you wrestle through the challenge I'm laying before you. Perhaps it would be good for you to carefully read Paul's public confession in Philippians 3. Ask the Father to help you to emulate his example. What would you rather have if you only had one choice? A change of circumstances? That also includes all unchangeable circumstances or a change of mind about your circumstances. This question is critical and it ties directly to the quality of life that you will experience with God and others. I, I am not sure I'm not sure if the Lord will ever change your circumstances. I am sure that He can change your mind about your circumstances. Listen to Paul. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, 
I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I, w- I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want you to perceive the unparalleled benefit of living in an unchangeable situation. Let me wrap up with a few questions. What does it mean for you to die to yourself? What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the question? What do your initial thoughts reveal about you? Your initial thoughts about that question of dying to yourself, what do those thoughts reveal about you? What do they reveal about how you think about God? Number two, when you think about losing something to gain Christ, do you believe you will lose it or are we talking about willing to lose it? Where do your mind where does your mind go? What is the difference between those two things? And what does your answer reveal about you? What do you hear? I mean, we could want something so badly that all we hear is that God's going to take it away from me. God's not going to change his circumstance. And we just go to the negative side of this problem rather than thinking optimistically about it's really about are you willing to, not whether you will or won't, but are you willing? Number three, what is something you are fearful of losing? Why are fear and anger instructive diagnostics that reveal what's crucial to you and how the loss of those things has so much control over your life? When did you respond angrily because the situation exceeded your ability to manage it? And then finally, question number four. Why is it essential to share what the Lord is doing in your life with another person? Uh, have, you, have you ever made a commitment to God but did not tell anyone your plans and you broke your commitment to God? How would permitting a friend access or permitting a friend give them access to your journey? How would it have changed the outcome? The next time you're in an unchangeable situation, will you think about these things that I've shared with you? Perhaps in those moments, it would serve you to go through this again, either read the article on our website, listen to the video, uh, listen to the podcast, watch the video, just go through these things again the next time you're in an unchangeable situation and go through the questions that I've asked. Job's situation never changed, but he did change after a while. We know that to be true. So don't beat yourself up if the struggle is intense and you go through it imperfectly as he did because he did. Anything worth having comes through much effort. Ask God to give you the courage to step into your unchangeable situation rather than run from it, looking for the exit signs. Expect Him to give you the grace you need to endure and even change you. Christ is worth the effort. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.